father David, Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. This is the gospel of our Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. Please be seated. Well, the first thing to see here is that Jesus had a plan. You can tell from verse 1. Jesus is planning out this event. It really is an event, right? It's an intentionally grand entrance that he has obviously is kind of um, forming here. He's intentionally planning this out and making it happen in a certain way. First of all, it's on the first day of the week, which is very busy. You know, the first day of the week, usually in Middle Eastern culture, you know, you, you go out and do your shopping. Um, even in Turkey, I noticed the word in Turkish for the first day of the week is pazar, which is, uh, you know, sounds like the word bazaar because it means the same thing. You go, you go, up, you go to the pazar for your shopping on your shopping day, the first day of the week. So this is going to be a very, you know, people would be out moving around. He would cause a stir with this whole donkey business. Like, people would notice. People would say, what's going on? They would tell their friends. People would want to come and see. So he's trying to create a stir here. And then, as intended, verse 5, people did see, right? And starting in, ver- in, in Bethphage, and Bethphage, these, these towns are on the eastern side of the Mount of Olives. So he's intentionally starting a few miles away from Jerusalem. This basically a parade that will go over the, over the top of the Mount of Olives down into the valley, Kidron Valley, and then up to the eastern entrance of Jerusalem, which would be the temple, the eastern entrance of the temple as well. So he's creating this procession as it well, you know, specifically to create an entrance. It's a drama. A drama of what? Of the return of the king. The return of the great king, the son of David. And that's what this is about. This is the return of the son of David to the city of David. Now, how do I know that this is really what this is about? Well, if you you look before this passage, right before it, you look right after it, what you find is this theme. Right before this passage, Jesus is going along, and someone's crying out to him on the street, Jesus, Jesus, and and they tell him to shut up, the person. They tell him, be quiet, be quiet, and he won't stop, and what he calls out is, son of David, son of David, and that's what stops Jesus in his tracks. That's what makes Jesus come and, and minister to this guy as a blind man. He actually heals him. But what stops Jesus is son of David. That's right before this. Right after this, he gets into Jerusalem, and he is talking with the Pharisees, and he gives them a puzzle. He says, how come David in the Psalms, the great King David, who talks, who's talking about the, his son, the Messiah, how come David can call him Lord? Because David says, the Lord, that's God, said to my Lord, that's his son, etc., etc. And Jesus says, so how could the son of David be greater than David? How could that be? Hmm. And nobody had an answer for him. But what was the theme? The son of David. So that's right before, right after. And then what's going on during this, you can tell by what they're calling out. What is the crowd calling out? To him, who can tell me? What are they shouting as Jesus goes by? Anybody? Yeah. 
they're shouting out, really, blessed is the coming kingdom of David. Right? Verse 10, you see that? Look, here comes the kingdom. What do they mean by that? What's going on? Well, you see, what they were looking back to is their high water mark. See, if you, if you read the Old Testament, you find that the, the, the real golden era, the thing that everybody looked back to is this is when it was good. This is when things were as they should be. It was during the, during the reign of King David and his son, King Solomon. And if you read the whole Old Testament story, you'll find that everything leads up to that point. Everything kind of is goes toward this God putting together these people, and then he gives them a land, he gives them a law, and finally he gives them a king. <coughs> Excuse me, a king. And that king was the great King David. And during his reign and, and his son Solomon's reign, they had utter peace. They had an amazing prosperity. Everybody was coming to them to learn. It was the coming of the kingdom of God on earth. It was fantastic. Everything leads up to that point in the Old Testament. And after that, everything kind of goes downhill. Everything's looking back at that point. As everything thinks, starts to fall apart. And ever since then, people are looking back to that golden age like this is the kingdom of God coming on earth. And not only that, God promised that ever since then, there would be a son of David to reign. There would be a son of David to sit on the throne. And when everything fell apart and the whole country like disintegrated in sin, that promise was still there, that the son would return, that David's son would return to the throne, the return of the king, the return of the great king. And this is what's going on here, is that people are getting are saying, this is it. This is happening now. Look, the son of the king is returning to the city of the king, and that's Jerusalem. So that's going on. I think it's pretty clear in the passage. And yet, friends, it is a passage, a story of wildly disparate images. On the one hand, you've got this regal theme going on, right? And on the other hand, at the same time, You've got this, this kind of wacky humility, and they're, and they're, and they're just kind of interlaced here. You, let, me, let me show you what I mean here, because this, this would be really surreal to live through. Imagine living through this, these moments. You know, on the regal side, okay, you have verses 1 through 3. What's going on where Jesus says, do this, and then they do it, and it's like that? What's going on there? Verses 1 through 3? What you see here is a king, and the king is commanding, and it is done. The king is giving commands. You say, this shall be, this shall happen, and it shall be, and it is done. You know, it's sort of like um, Captain Kirk, you know, on the USS Enterprise. Make it so, right? I had an, I had an elder in a previous church, and uh, he came to me once. He said, you know... Sam, you, you, should, you should be saying to us, make it so. And then we make it so. You know, you're senior pastor, so you should say, you know, make it so. And that, you know, your word is done. Um, this, is, this is pretty funny because later on, he got mad at me for something I was doing, I wanted the church to, to do, and he left the church. So <laughs> apparently I couldn't just say, make it so about something I wanted. <laughs> I couldn't do it. But Jesus can. 
And you notice everything he says here, he gives four commands, verses, he says four things in verses one through four, and they're all done. They're all done just as he says. It happens just as he says in verses four through seven. And it's not just people who are obeying him. The circumstances are obeying him too. He says, you go into this town and you will find a donkey tied up in the thoroughfare right in front of you. And, you know, some commentators think, well, you know, he maybe planned that ahead of time. Friends, he did not plan this ahead of time. You know how we know? Luke tells us when he's telling this story that the people asking him, the disciples, when they try to take the colt, and, and the people say, standing there say, what are you doing taking the colt? They were the owners of the colt. And so if Jesus had planned this ahead of time, they would know, this is, they would know his disciples. They didn't know. This was Jesus just saying, this is the way it's going to be. The king commands, and, and the whole fabric of reality kind of bends to his word. That's what we're getting here. We're getting a picture of a man who commands, who is obeyed. That's a king. And then he's enthroned by his followers. You see in verse 7, you have something of coronation happening on this donkey. And the king, verses 8 through 10, is adored. So you have this regal procession right up to verse 11. So that's on the one hand. And yet, on the other hand, what do we see going on here? This, this discordant image. I mean, it's a donkey. I mean, it's just a donkey. I mean, it says colt here. As you read this in, in the parallel passage in Matthew and John, you find it really is a donkey. It's actually not even the big donkey. There were two donkeys, and he was riding on the little one. So where's the greatness in this? You know, where's the king in this? And yeah, the king speaks, and he's obeyed. But by whom? Does, does the king utter his word and, you know, cities tremble? The king issues his command, you know, and armies bow down before him? No, it's a bunch of, you know, donkey keepers. Where is the glory? Where is the greatness? For this great king, this is the son of David, returning to the great city. And then, what's his throne, this majestic throne? It's their cloaks, it's people's, it's people's garments. How impressive. <laughs> you know, this is no, you know, Game of Thrones throne, right? But not that I watched Game of Thrones. I didn't watch Game of Thrones, just want you to know that, okay? I actually started to at the beginning, and then I was like, what is this? There's so much flesh, you know? <laughs> what is it with HBO? It's like, get out of my bedroom, you know? So I couldn't take it. But I remember the throne in the beginning. This is not that, okay? This is not Game of Thrones. These people's garments... And what gifts does the king get? What gifts are brought before the great son of David? Palm branches. So, you know, what is wrong with this picture? It's just like, it's, it's sort of like me walking up and seeing the glorious uh, pulpit of George Whitfield. You know? What you're seeing, this is the point, friends. What you're seeing in this discordant picture in the son of David, on the donkey, is an image of the kingdom which you now, Christian, inhabit. This is it. This is, a, this is a kingdom of hidden glory, of unseen yeast, of a tiny, tiny, tiny mustard seed. This is a kingdom of a rejected cornerstone. In fact, that's what Jesus comes in. What's being described here and what the people are really enacting 
in a conscious way is Psalm 118. You go back and read Psalm 118 of the approach here of the glorious, not only king, but God. What you find is this image, and Jesus actually, when he gets into Jerusalem, he quotes that psalm to the Pharisees. He says, the stone which the builders rejected has become the head of the corner. This one that you're rejecting, me, I'm actually holding the house up. And you are rejecting that. So friends, I just wanted to put that out to you. This is the kingdom that the Lord says, in this era, this is what his kingdom is going to be like. So when you have experiences that are just along these same lines where people are like not getting the glory and you don't see things as, the, as they should be in the world. It's like, wow, this deserves a lot more glory than it's getting. What you're doing is you're having an experience of this very same kingdom. I was on a train riding home. I had gone to see a play and I was on a train going home and I'd actually ended up in the same car as the actors who were in the play kind of neat but got to talk to them they were really nice folks and there was something in the play that just illustrated something really well about the gospel and so I was I don't know we started talking about Jesus Christ and I was I was trying to give them this like amazing news about Christ and you know what their reaction is mm, not interested <laughs> I was very clear I was talking to them I was like here's this great words like wow this is so wonderful nah they didn't care. They just didn't want to know. Wasn't interested. So there are experiences like that in our lives, all through our lives. And we shouldn't be surprised by them. If this is the king who has inaugurated this kingdom, if this is the inauguration of the kingdom, it's just like George Whitfield's pulpit. There's a built-in hiddenness to the glory of this kingdom. And as that psalm, Psalm 118 says, this is the Lord's doing. And it's marvelous in our eyes. Can you say that? That's what Zechariah said. You know, Zechariah also prophesied. He described this image hundreds of years before it happened. The prophet Zechariah. You know how he said it? He said, listen, Jerusalem, look, look, look. Your king is coming to you on a donkey that's this picture so a couple things then I want us to apply uh, from this picture of if this really is the kingdom the first thing first of all non-christian friend uh, if, if you're here there's something you should you should reckon with from this passage, and that is how Jesus plans and welcomes and receives worship from people. You have to recognize that Jesus Christ here is, is, is planning for this adoration, and then when it comes, he welcomes it, he receives it. And this is one of these places, it, all throughout the Gospels, where Jesus welcomes people worshiping him. And if you are a non-believer, you've got to reckon with that. You might be like my friend, you know, I have a friend, and uh, a while ago, he's not a believer, you know, he's not a Christian in any sense, but his kids were getting to a certain age, and so he started to say, you know, I should find out about this religious stuff, you know, because I'm trying to raise my kids, how do I raise them the right way? And so I said to him, you know, why don't we just get together and read the Bible 
together for spiritual growth. Want to just do that? He was up for that. So we started to do that. And so we got together once a week, and he would read some in between, and then we would read together. It was fantastic, friends. You ever have an opportunity to read the Bible with a non-believer? It is just so much fun. And so we did this for a while. Then we got busy, and, you know, he had to, you know, we, we stopped meeting for a while. And then um, I, I got together with him just last month, and I was surprised to find that he was still reading the Bible, even though we weren't meeting together. He was still reading the Bible on his own. I was saying, how is that going for you? How, what does it mean to you? And, he's, and this is what he said to me. He said, you know, I really love Jesus. I'm really attracted to, you know, his character and his teaching, the things about Christ. I really, really enjoy. But he says, I can't shake the feeling that someone came along after Jesus, like his apostles, and made it into something that Jesus did not intend, like this religion. He's like, I can't shake the feeling that the apostles sort of added this layer onto Jesus' teaching, that sort of, you know, all this stuff about worshiping him and, and uh, he's the son of God and this is a religion that he's trying to start. And I was very sad for my friend. And I hope that he, as he continues to read, he'll recognize something. And that is, if you try that, if you try to say, well, I really like Jesus as a teacher, as a great reformer, and you try to pull out and drag out all the other stuff about him being worshipped and, and things like that, there's not going to be enough, there's not going to be much left. Because what you're pulling out, I mean, what reformer, what great teacher would go around saying that he is... Lord of the, of the Sabbath. That is, he's the Lord over one of the Ten Commandments. You know, or he forgives people's sins that he doesn't even know. Or he says he's greater than the temple. He's greater than King David. He's going to come back after he died. He's going to return again. And, he's, you, and, and at the final judgment, he is going to be presiding over that. I mean, who says that? You have to pull a lot out of the Gospels to be left with just these teachings that you like. But, you know, kind of come to think of it, my friend was actually being a very good American because this sentiment of trying to get at, oh, just the teachings of Jesus, the ethical teachings of Jesus, and you know, not all this worship him stuff, that's a very American thing to do. It actually goes back to our founding. You know what else I saw at that exhibit in the Smithsonian when I went through? You know what they had? You might be able to guess. Jefferson's Bible. If you ever heard of Jefferson's Bible, you know what he did. Jeff Thomas Jefferson went through and he said, oh, I love the teaching of Jesus, the ethical, wonderful teaching of Jesus. Let me just pull out that. and Let me just take out. And he actually took scissors and 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 glue, because they didn't have a word processor at the time. And he cut up the Bible, the New Testament, cut up the Gospels, so he could just get the teaching of Jesus. And this is what he wrote to John Adams. This is Je Thomas Jefferson wrote in a letter, 1813, to John Adams, quote, Jesus Christ's teaching is as easily distinguishable as diamonds in a dunghill. The result of him pulling out just Jesus' teaching is an octavo of 46 pages of pure and unsophisticated doctrines, unquote. 
So Thomas Jefferson is just like my friend here. But when you, when you try to pull out what isn't Jesus claiming to be God, you aren't left with much. I came around the corner and I saw that. I saw the actual Bible of Thomas Jefferson where he did that. And I'll tell you, friends, ain't much left. <laughs> it's pretty small. It's pretty small. But that, because you, you can't even, you can't really even do that in the New Testament. And, and this is what, if you're a non-believer, you need to grapple with that. This is Jesus. He is accepting worship. He is welcoming worship. Now, believing friend, if you're here today, what you need to see, and I want you to glory in this, that what we have here described is really the truest moment in the history of the world. And I want you to feel it. I want you to take a moment and feel it. And you can see it, the setup here in verse 2. He was put on a colt that no one had ever ridden. Why? Why was that important? No one ever sat on this donkey. Because this was a moment in history that had never been before. He came through a womb that had never been never born. He sat on a donkey that had never been ridden. He was laid in a tomb that had never been used. Why? All for a never-before moment in the history of the world. This is when the hype actually matched the event. Because what was happening here was actually true. What you see in verses 8 through 10, the veneration, their cloaks and their psalms, as I've been saying, it's, it's, it's enacting Psalm 118 here. And in Psalm 118, you know what it says? Let me just quote you, Psalm 118. The Lord is God, and he has made his light to shine upon us with bows in hand, join in the festal procession up to the horns of the altar. You are my God, and I will give you thanks. You are my God, I will exalt you. So this, for this, you know, it's probably like one hour, maybe two, of Jesus' life. His earthly life matched the truth. What was going on in his earthly life matched the truth. And so verse 9, they adore him. And they're still cheering after he's passed. It's, it's more than a parade. It's, it's a coronation. It's like, you know, when you're at a parade and the float goes by and you're like, okay, great, you know, where's the car? You know, that wasn't like this. They're praising, they're shouting before he comes. They're shouting while he's there. He's, they're shouting after he after he goes by, you know what they're shouting? Hosanna! Hosanna! That's an Aramaic expression that means save, please. Please save us. And for once, what was actually happening in the crowd matched the reality. This was the one who could save them. You know, Craig was bringing up these political candidates, you know, and you go to these rallies and people are yelling and, you know, there's a lot of hype. But here's the one time when the hype actually matched the reality. The one who actually could save the return of the true king to his throne was being acknowledged. And I just love to, to, to think about this. These brief minutes, these brief minutes when the world was as it should be. That's what we have here. The truest moment in the history of the world. And, and no other time in history... Was this true? See what I'm saying? It didn't last for more than an hour 
or so in Kidron Valley, this, this was true. Jesus is adored. Of course, it doesn't last long. Jesus knows it's not going to last long. That's why when he comes toward Jerusalem, he starts weeping. It's not because he wasn't going to get a throne. It's because we were so clueless and did not recognize the day of our visitation. And so we come to verse 11. After all of this, the return of the king and, and, and... Verse 11, it couldn't be stranger. The city arrives in the city of the, the king arrives in the city of the king. He looks around and he goes back to the Mount of Olives. <laughs> there is no welcome for this great king. This is the big entrance. It's, I mean, it's almost comical. Okay. Tell you what, let's just read verse 11 as it should be read. Let's, let's, let me read to you let me read to you a different verse 11. This is what should have happened when the return of the true king to the true city of the king happened. It occurred. This is the way verse 11 should have been written if we could use our imagination. He arrived at the east wall, the beautiful gate. I'm pretty sure it was the gate beautiful that he went up to because the promise always enters from the east. And the doors flung open. And the Sadducees rushed forward and forbade the donkey to take one more step because they ushered out a jewel-studded litter and they wouldn't let the donkey carry him any further because they wanted to, Jesus to sit in this litter so they could carry him into the city. And they would carry him into the fabulous Herod's temple, which providentially had just been completed at that time. The greatest structure that had ever been built ever would be built in Israel. And they had just been finished. And so they would have toured, they toured him, gave him a tour of the best parts of it. And then the Sadducees would, the Sadducees bore him to this amazing throne crafted in anticipation because they believed the prophets. They believed Daniel of what was coming. And when they had seated him with utter delight on his throne, the Herodians came forward and laid at his feet the city's treasures, the national treasury. And all along the courts on either side of him, the most expressive, the most real, the truest works of art lined the colonnades just for his enjoyment. And the grandest shofar the grandest shofar in all of Israel was blown to begin the, the rendition of the finest musicians in the country who'd practiced since childhood for just this occasion to present to him the most beautiful music from all over the world. And then the dancers came in, only the most excellent dancers, only those who could do seven pirouettes in a row without stopping, because that only that would do for this great king. And the acrobats would come and sweat, and they would put on a production that would make anything that was put on the New York Metropolitan House of Opera look like a, a kid's skit in the backyard. And a dozen maitre d's would be running around, pulling their hair out to just make sure everything was right as they set before him the finest of sea and land, the food that had to, they had to offer. And cooks 
would explode in glee that he or his disciples might sample just one of their dishes. And then the chief and most honored of the Pharisees approached the throne doing obeisance and laid the Torah A hundred priests came to pay him homage and to perform the sacrifices before him. And everyone would look in awe as he held up his hand to stop them. And everyone would look at him and forget what they were doing because the king might speak. And instead he shakes his head that no, no more sacrifices shall be done this day because a few days hence he would make the final sacrifice that would make all other sacrifices unnecessary. And the priests would stop in wonder and then throw down their knives and dance at the wonder that this, this could be so. That's my verse 11. That's verse 11 as it should have been. But no, we didn't recognize the day of our visitation. And so, we're here today, though. And the great thing about what we are, friends, as a church, is that we are the means of actually that welcome that didn't happen. We, you, can give him that welcome. And how do you do that? that how do you prolong that shining reality <clears throat> in Kidron Valley? Well, three ways. One way is you make up for that lack of welcome with your, with your lives. You can give what you have to this kingdom. Just saying, as they said in verse 6, right? The Lord has need of it. You say that about the things in your life. The Lord has need of it. That makes you a fit herald for him. And he accepts it. He welcomes that. Just like those donkeys, just like the, the garments on top of the donkey. And... Secondly, when you feel not very triumphant, when you feel that things are pretty inglorious, that you're not, this, you know, this is the kingdom, you don't feel like this is a very glorious kingdom, you realize what you're getting there is the true nature of this kingdom in this era. Get on the donkey. Get on the donkey with Jesus, because that's what our lives are like now. That's what he promises if you're following this king. And glory in it, glory in the smallness of it, glory in the humility, glory as, as Don Francisco put it in his song, the rudeness of the setting just ignites the jewel's fire, the pearl beyond the greatest price, the joy of man's desire. And let that sink in so you understand your life. When people think that you're crazy, when people even close to you dismiss you, they don't want to hear. You're discouraged. What are you doing here? You're following your king. You're following this same king. And thirdly, third way, feel the glory with your adoration. You can continue this passage's few moments of truth in the world with your praise to him with your saying things that are true, bringing out that reality. And that is precious to him. If you think that Jesus had those few moments of reality on earth, you can continue those now with your praise 
to him. And as we're going to come now and approach the table, that's what you're doing. You're giving him the welcome that he didn't have in Jerusalem. And that's very precious to him. You should know that. So let us do as <clears throat> Methodius of Philippi said back in the 200s, the way he put it, instead of our garments, let us spread our hearts before him. Amen. Please stand with me.